following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Have you ever heard the phrase, prove it? Prove it. You make a claim that you can do something. You make a claim that you have some kind of power or right to do this, that, or the other, perhaps to jump a certain height or jump down a flight of steps. You boys know lots about jumping down flights of steps. Or hitting a home run or performing some other great feat. And then your friends and your colleagues say, yeah, you could do that? Well, prove it. In the different miracles that we have immediately following the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is proving what he said about himself, the the claims he's made about himself, both explicitly and implicitly in this sermon, through his miracles. He is proving that he does indeed have the authority with which he had been teaching the crowds on the Sermon on the Mount. And this evening, as he's going uh, through and, 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 and performing these miracles as has been summarized in Matthew 4.23, healing uh, those who are struck with various diseases and infirmities, leprosy, uh, paralysis or palsy of some kind in our text, fever in the next text, and so on. Jesus uh, is demonstrating certain things, uh, truths, about how his authority and power is breaking into the world and what that's supposed to teach us about our relationship to him and to God. And this evening, in the healing of the centurion's servant, uh, Jesus Christ demonstrates that faith alone is the instrument by which any man can enter the kingdom of heaven. That's really what he's focusing on as he takes this occasion that's been presented upon his entrance into Capernaum. He's demonstrating that faith alone is the instrument by which any man can enter the kingdom of heaven. And so, though there's a lot of teaching in these few verses here, it's still a narrative, and the text uh, breaks apart or or divides down in terms of uh, narrative movement. There's a lot of movement in this text, a lot of moving verbs. And so, the way we'll break it down this evening is uh, in three parts. In the first place, the the plea of the centurion in verses 5 to 9, and then the prophecy of the kingdom in verses 10 to 12, and finally, the pronouncement of Christ, the King, in verse 13. So the three things we'll look at uh, are the plea, the prophecy, and the pronouncement. Hopefully that's easy enough to remember as you, as you go forth from here and consider how Christ demonstrates that faith indeed is the instrument by which any man can enter the kingdom of heaven. In the first place, we have the plea in verses 5 to 9. And in this plea that the centurion makes to Jesus, uh, Christ is supplied with an occasion to teach on a crucial aspect of the kingdom, namely how to enter the kingdom, by what right um, or how we have the right to enter the kingdom of heaven, so to speak. And the... The action here between the centurion and Jesus as they go back and forth in verses 5 to 9 really show us three things. The substance of the plea, Christ's response to the plea, and then the centurion's reply 
to Christ, and namely the change in situation that Christ brings by his response to his plea. So in the first place, we have the substance of the plea. It's pretty straightforward. If you look at verses 5 and 6, when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him, or beseeching him, asking him, pleading with him, and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus has descended from the mount where he had uh, astonished the crowds with his authoritative teaching, and he healed a leper on the way to Capernaum. It's obviously his destination. That's where he's arriving now. He's entering into his uh, town where he's taken up residence. And he has certified by that cleansing of the leper his divine power over the most wretched sign of sin and death known to Israel. It's a very Jewish miracle to heal a man of leprosy because he's cleansing him of ritual defilement, allowing him to come back into the worshiping community. We considered all of that last week. And then just as Jesus enters Capernaum, at that very moment, he receives a report uh, or actually a request, I should say, from an officer in the Roman army. Luke fills in some additional details for us, telling us that the request was brought from the centurion to Jesus by some Jewish elders who appreciated the centurion's uh, generosity and, and even faith in the God of Israel and generosity to Israel's people. The urgency in this request is what's emphasized. Notice what is said. It's not even a question. It's really a statement. He, uh, the message that is brought to Jesus, it's relayed to him, is, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Any request there is implied, at least in the way that Matthew records uh, this, the, the statement that's brought to Jesus. The emphasis is on the, the condition of the servant, this beloved servant of the centurion, one whom the man regards as a son, even. The word that he uses for servant here isn't doulos. It's not slave. It's a different Greek word, which is, is filled with more affection. This is somebody that the centurion really appreciates and cares about. And, and what's going on with him? He's fearfully tormented, so much so that he cannot remove himself from the bed and come to Jesus for healing. He's stuck at home. Uh, we know something about this in the Groff household this past weekend. Uh, Zoe, I hate to embarrass her like this, but you know, appendicitis is no light matter. It is fearfully painful. And she had a hard time moving from the bed once it had progressed and even gotten to the point probably of rupturing her appendix. And so that, that is just a, a small you know, example or expression of what's going on here in the text. The man was stuck, bedridden, with so much pain, suffering grievously, even on the brink of death, unable to get up out of his bed. And the centurion, who loves this man as he would his own son, is struck with just how dire the situation is. So what does the substance of the centurion's plea tell us then? And emphasizing the pain that his servant is in and bringing it to Jesus, implying you can do this. What does the centurion, uh, what does his plea communicate to us? Two things. Namely, that he believes that Jesus is able and willing to help. Not even the leper was sure that Jesus would be willing to help. Now, the leper was humble in making his request. But this man 
He comes with all confidence and boldness. He hears about Jesus, hears about his teaching, hears about what he's doing in the region, and he says, that's, that's the one. I need to speak to him. He is sent by God. And what is Christ's response to the plea? Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. I myself, the emphasis is there as well, I myself shall come and heal him. Matthew Henry describes this passage, I really appreciated it, as an exchange of grace transacted between the centurion and Christ. They're trading graces, so to speak. Not only does the centurion show his gracious love and regard for his servant, but also his gracious regard of Christ. He has a faith in Christ, which is the product of of nothing other than the grace of God at work in him. And in his every word and his response, Christ shows tender grace to the centurion. There's no delay in his initial response. There's no uh, condition uh, applied to, to what has happened. There's no bargaining. He simply says, I myself will come and heal him straight away. Well, in saying that he will come into this Roman's home to heal the servant, Jesus is expressing a willingness not only to do good, but actually to risk ritual defilement in the sight of his countrymen, in the sight of his fellow Jews. Much as when he touched the leper, you would expect him then to become ritually defiled, except for the fact that the leprosy just immediately goes away. Um, So too, Jesus, in coming into the home of a pagan, one who is not of the household of Israel, that would risk ritual defilement. What great grace Jesus has to come into contact with needy sinners. Indeed, he does not contemn. He comes full of compassion on his mission of healing and preaching here in Matthew's gospel. Well, the centurion's reply is telling in verses 8 and 9. The centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. Again, Luke expands on this uh, in his version of the account to tell us that it was actually a second delegation from the centurion who come and give his reply to the unexpected development in this situation, namely that Jesus is coming. And the word that's used here in, in, Matthew, chapter, uh, in Matthew 8, verse 8, uh, but the centurion said, the word there is uh, replied, but it's got the nuance of replied to the change of situation. And the reason I bring that out for you is just to show that Luke's gospel and Matthew's gospel here, though containing slightly different details, are in full agreement. The situation has changed. Jesus is on his way to the man's house. And then the man hears about it from someone and says, oh, no, 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 and sends some other friends to intercept Jesus and uh, and to bring a new uh, wrinkle to the message, so to speak to bring a a change in the request from the centurion. And Luke gives us all of those details, and Matthew fully agrees with it. Uh, Essentially, what the centurion expresses in his reply is great humility. Notice what he says. He says, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. He's echoing the words of John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3. I am not worthy to untie the thongs of your sandals, John the Baptist said. And so this centurion, 
who has a lot more power than John in society, says, I am not worthy for you even to enter under my roof, to come to my house. Perhaps he understands that if Jesus were to enter, he would greatly inconvenience himself through ritual uh, defilement. But perhaps that's not what he was getting at. He just expresses humility. No, no, no. Please don't bother yourself to come. And what does he ask for now? Now he says, just say the word. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. He expresses not only humility, but amazing faith in Jesus, doesn't he? In Jesus' power, in Jesus' ability. Just say the word. What amazing grace is this expressed in the faith of the centurion? What was it that gave this man such faith in the word of Christ? How was it that this man, this Roman military officer, discerned and knew that Jesus came declaring the word of God. Well, the Westminster Larger Catechism actually gives us a good answer to this in a way when it asks, how doth it appear that the scriptures are the word of God? This is the answer in the Larger Catechism. The scriptures manifest themselves to be the word of God by their majesty and purity, by the consent of all the parts, how they all agree, and the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God by their light and power to convince and convert sinners, to comfort and build up believers unto salvation. All of this is abundantly true of the preaching ministry of our Lord in his Sermon on the Mount and in his public teaching as well. It never contradicts itself or any part of Scripture. It's, it's, it's beautiful. It's memorable. It's, it's effective for the turning of men from sins unto righteousness. But the larger catechism can, continues here. But... The Spirit of God bearing witness by and with the Scriptures in the heart of man is alone able fully to persuade it that they are the very Word of God. Who was at work in the centurion? Even before the centurion brought his plea to Jesus, the Spirit of God himself worked that faith in him. What a grace. This man of high station and authority humbles himself before Christ's station and authority as one who clearly possesses the power of God and a mandate to wield it in the healing of those who are suffering. In his argument from the lesser to the greater then in verse 9, for I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me and so on, we can learn two things about the nature of Christ's sovereign authority. In the first place, Christ is sovereign over all our afflictions and diseases, and they are ordered to the glory of God and even for our good, particularly for our sanctification and our growth in grace. Do you believe this? The centurion did. He fully believed that Jesus had power over the disease that was afflicting his beloved servant. He fully believed that. Do you believe that? When you're laid out and you're laid low in physical pain or even in emotional torment or some kind of disappointment in work or in your neighborhood or in your family, do you believe that God is sovereign over it? And if you have any need or any request, you bring it to him. You bring it to Christ and lay it down at his feet. If you believe it, do you actually do it? I asked the men that yesterday. We are talking about uh, how to confess our sins. I said, well, the first thing we got to do is we need to confess that we were reluctant to confess our sins and to bring them to Jesus for redress. 
We need to confess uh, that, Lord, we were slow to come to you. Please forgive us for that. And then also forgive us for our sins. Wash us, cleanse us, meet us. So too, Jesus is sovereign over our afflictions, and it is to him that we must bring our petitions. The centurion believed that Christ was sovereign over his beloved servant's illness. In the second place, we are to submit to Christ's authority even as soldiers follow the orders and the authority of their commanders and as germs flee at Christ's word, as we see in this passage. Notice how the, how the centurion puts it. I say to this one, to this soldier, go, and he goes. I say to that soldier, come, and he comes. And I say to my slave, do this, and he does it. He produces the work. He fulfills the order. No hesitation. When we're searching the scriptures and we come uh, to, to the word and we are confronted with a demand that's placed on us, what is our reaction? What is your reaction to the word of God? Do you immediately, earnestly, fully, and joyfully submit and say, sir, yes, sir, and go or come or do? That's the picture of submission to authority that's given here in the centurion's reply. Well, all of this is the picture of the plea of the centurion in the first place. And having laid out that groundwork, we now have the occasion for Christ to teach those around him something really important about the kingdom of God. And what Christ says here in verses 10 to 12 as he unpacks the prophecy of the kingdom, what he says here strikes at the heart of a perennial misconception about the kingdom, not only among uh, the old covenant people of Israel, but even in the visible church today. Something that is a recurring issue, generation by generation. And as Jesus uh, gives this prophecy, he does it in two ways. First, he focuses on faith in verse 10. And then in verses 11 and 12, he foretells something about the kingdom feast. So in verse 10, he says, Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, Amen, I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. Jesus marveled not because he was surprised. His amazement expressed here, actually in the same language that's used in verse, uh, or chapter 7, verse 29, about the people, um, or verse 28, the people being amazed at his teaching. It's the same word here. Jesus was amazed at the man's faith. Uh, the amazement expressed here was to highlight uh, or contrast, really, the, the faith of the centurion and the faithlessness of Jesus' countrymen, the Jews. That's, that's what that reaction, that response, that's how it's functioning in our text this evening. And there's two reasons for the marveling. There are two reasons that Jesus is marveling here, that he's amazed at the man's faith. First, that such little acquaintance with the things of God could yield up such a confident and humble faith in God's power. This man did not grow up in Israel. For all we know, he boarded a boat in Italy with a group of, of guys drawn from around the empire and was shipped out to that backwater province uh, to be stationed in Capernaum to ensure there was no insurrection or anything. And once he got there, he encountered the God of the Jews in a place that wasn't even really the purest expression of Judaism either. It wasn't like he was stationed in Jerusalem or something. He was in Capernaum, a place that was 
pretty well known for having a real mixed bag in terms of the religious life of Israel. But he gets there, and he, he starts hearing about this God and what he's done, and he believes. Jesus marvels at that. The people of Israel who have been living under the ordinances of, of the reading of the Torah and the, and the instruction of the rabbis, they don't have faith like this man because this man had such a scant acquaintance with the things of God. So that's the first reason for his marveling. And then the second reason is that while the Jews will demand for signs, and as Paul tells us, Greeks seek for knowledge or wisdom, this Roman official wanted one thing. What did he ask for? A word. That's all he wanted. He didn't want a sign. He didn't seek for knowledge or information about how to do such and such. He just said, just say the word. And he knew that his request will be fulfilled, that his servant will be healed. Calvin observed on this, quote, though it was the will of God that our salvation should be accomplished in the flesh of Christ, and though he seals it daily by the sacraments, yet the certainty of it, of our salvation, must be obtained from the word, unless we yield such authority to the word as to believe that as soon as God has spoken by his ministers, our sins are undoubtedly forgiven and we are restored to life. All confidence of salvation is overthrown, end quote. The principle of our knowing God is the word of God. Not our experience, not our feelings, not even the, the promises of men, simply the word of God. Now, to believe Christ is to believe his word concerning himself in all things. Boys and girls, as you read the Bible, do you believe it? Do you believe Christ's words? Do you believe the word of God and what it testifies about God and what it testifies about you and your need for a Savior? Do you go, brothers and sisters, to the word praying, Lord, strengthen my faith in this, that I might be saved? Well, we've considered how Jesus focuses on faith here as he's preparing to prophesy about the future kingdom of heaven. And then in verses 11 and 12, he now moves to make that prophecy. This is where Christ introduces one of the great themes of Matthew's gospel, the inescapable conflict between Jesus, the promised Messiah, and a faithless, unbelieving nation to whom he had come and yet is rejecting him over and over again, even unto death. Look at what he says. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Herman Ritterboss puts this well in describing the theme of Matthew's gospel. He says, one could say that the gospel of Matthew is a single great apology, that is defense, for the Christian faith in the light of the Old Testament, and thus also a single great indictment or condemnation of the Jews' unbelief. His primary purpose, in fact, Matthew's purpose, was to demonstrate to them that Jesus was the Christ, the King of Israel, who had been promised to their forefathers. Who was Abraham? Abraham was the, the father of the faithful. He was the one who had believed the Lord's word and was counted righteous. 
for that faith. Isaac and Jacob are heirs of the promises that Abraham had received from God, and they labored faithfully in their day with eyes fixed on heaven, on that celestial city. And these are the patriarchs of the people of the Jews. And yet Jesus is saying that those from the eastern parts and the western parts, the various regions of the world, they will come and they will be seated at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in fact, they are occupying the spots, the places from which you, O Israelites, have been removed for your faithlessness, your lack of faith. Now, all of this is in accord with what is said in the prophets. In Isaiah 59, 19, we read before the service, so they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, that is the east, for he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives away. And what do we read in Malachi 1 and verse 11? That all the nations would fear the Lord and that they would come and be seated at his table. And in Paul will develop this in great detail in Romans uh, chapters 9 through 11 in discussing how uh, the, the dead branches of a faithless Israel will be cut off and engrafted onto that tree will be the living branches of the faithful nations who trust in the God of Israel, in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And though all of this is prophesied in the Old Testament, yet what Jesus says here would really rile uh, the, the anger of his countrymen, wouldn't it? It would be as if someone comes in here and, and says to us as uh, diligent Presbyterians, that indeed the sons of Presbyterianism will be cast out and in their place will be put those who are drawn from all manner of, of diverse backgrounds, uh, religiously and, and ethnically and, and all other kinds of ways. For they will come and they will receive faith by grace and grace through faith. Whereas you who will not hear my words, God says, will be cast out. Jesus is coming with a hard teaching, a difficult prophecy foretelling the nature of the kingdom feast. And so Christ's condemnation of the unbelieving sons of the kingdom in verse 12, it's a great tragedy. It's a tragic thing. Not, no outward privilege or benefit will be of any use to them apart from faith. The faith possessed by the centurion, the faith that will draw many from east and west to recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to whom the promises were given and received through faith. And this teaching would be very difficult to hear for those who are putting all their hope, not necessarily in Christ the Messiah, but in their heritage or their identity as Jews or as members of the visible church in that time. So you're here tonight. You're seated under saving ordinances with every advantage tending to your salvation at your disposal. Look in the pew racks or on your laps. We have many copies of God's Word right here. And I know you have tons of copies of the Bible at home. Each of you in this room, unless I'm mistaken, bears on your brow the sign of baptism. Many of you uh, frequent attendance upon the means of grace. In fact, all of you, week in and week out, are very diligent and, and careful in coming to church and hearing the word read and preached. And I know, boys and girls, that your parents, each and every night, more or less regularly, I should say, are putting the Word of God before you. 
And even being homeschooled kids, you're reading the Bible during the day as part of your studies and just as part of your daily devotional habits. But all of this, all of this will be of no use to you if you do not grasp Christ by faith. Sincere, affectionate, submissive, living, and vital faith in Him as God the Son and Son of God. You must, as the Shorter Catechism puts it, receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation as He is offered to us in the Gospel, in the record of His ministry, of His life, of His death, of His resurrection. Consider what destiny is threatened to those who reject him in verse 12. The sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. When he says sons of the kingdom, he means those who are part of the church, of the visible expression of God's covenant community, and yet have no faith, who merely wear the outfit, the uniform, without the reality, you know, playing for a different team. They, being sons of the kingdom, but not subjects of the king, not brothers to the prince, will be cast out into outer darkness, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's how Christ most frequently describes the eternal punishment reserved for those who reject him as the Messiah. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. What does he mean by that? That punishment is a great deprivation, a withholding of something good, a withholding of God's blessedness. Uh, a withholding of the sweetness and goodness of God, which is to be tasted and seen by those who trust in Christ. And in this experience of deprivation, there is bitter grief and indignation, not righteous indignation, but just painful indignation at being excluded from that kingdom feast pictured in verse 11 of reclining at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus is prophesying even now to his hearers calling them to true and living faith, setting before them the faith of this Gentile centurion, this foreign soldier, as an example to them of what it looks like to trust in Christ with zeal and without any hesitation. Well, he follows up this prophecy then with a pronouncement. We shift back, as it were, to the main action that's going on. He's taught his lesson and he comes and he said to the centurion or to his delegation, go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Two parts here in verse 13, very simple. The word spoken and then the healing effected. We don't end on a note of sorrow in our passage this evening. In fact, we have a glorious resolution as Christ the King makes his pronouncement in favor of the centurion's request. Jesus' word to the centurion was go, it shall be done for you as you have believed, according to your faith. Note in the effecting of the healing at the end of verse 13, and the servant was healed that very moment. Note that Jesus grants the man's request because the man's faith underpinning that request perfectly accorded with the realities in Jesus' ministry, that is, that he had all power and all authority to do what the man had asked. Our faith must correspond to a true conception of Jesus. We don't believe in a Jesus of our own making, of um, Mormon Jesus, or Muslim Isa, or of, of Jesus, you know, the good and noble teacher. 
No. We believe in Christ, the Son of God. Any faith or trust that is built up on our imagination or false teaching is vain. Consider how one commentator puts this. A wrong faith may be ever so strong in expecting a wrong gift. Jesus will not meet that faith and expectation. He will first correct it, end quote. We see one such example of wrong faith in John chapter 4, verses 46 and following. In John 4, 46 and following, we read this. Provides a good contrast for our passage this evening. Therefore, he came again, that is, Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. You see how similar this is to the account we have in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel of the healing of the centurion's servant. So Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Now, why did Jesus say that to him? Well, because in the previous verse, the man was imploring him not only to heal his son, but to come and to heal his son. And the royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. Jesus refused to come. He's showing here in this passage the power of his word to effect a change and a healing. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. And as he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. And then they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed in his whole household. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Do you see what Jesus did? It's not that he withheld the good thing from the man. But he took the man's imperfect faith and corrected it, told him to go. I'm not coming, but you go. And the man uh, in faith set out, and his faith being corrected was then confirmed. There's no such correction in our passage back in Matthew chapter 8, because the centurion came with a faith that was already pure, a faith that was already corresponding to, cohering with, the realities in Jesus' ministry, namely, just say the word. Just say the word, and all will be done. Now, you've come here tonight to worship the living God, to meet with Christ, the living word in his inscripturated, written word, read and preached to you. And his word confronts you at all times with this truth that he has demonstrated to us this evening, namely, Christ demonstrates that faith alone is the instrument by which any man can enter the kingdom of heaven. My friends, rest not on your merits. Rest not on your Presbyterianism or your Reformed heritage. Rest not on even your experience or any such thing. Rather, rest upon the word of Christ by faith. Rest on him by faith as he is revealed to us in his word. For this is true, rock solid. And when you come to him and you ask him to do that which he's promised to do according to his word, that is to sanctify you, make you holy and righteous and to accept you for his sake and not for anything that you've done, then he is faithful and just 
to hear you and to do all that you've asked of him. Let us pray. Let us stand together for prayer. Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you for this picture of faith that you've given us in Matthew chapter 8. And we plead with you, work this faith in us that we would receive your word with gladness and live in light of it, in full obedience to you, without any hesitation. Lord, cast away from us all doubting. Fill in for us where we are ignorant a knowledge that accords with godliness that we might know Christ in fuller measure. And grant us your spirit that we can apply this word in our lives and in our hearts such that you are glorified in what we think, say, and do. Lord, you know where our hearts are lacking, where we are yet out of step with you, where we have wrong notions of Christ, and we pray that you would correct us by word and spirit. We thank you, Lord, that at your word, you can affect these changes in us, which we so desperately need and so imperfectly seek from your hand. We pray now that you would take that which we offer to you and dedicate it to your purposes, and we dedicate ourselves this week to your service. Lord, as we go from this place, uh, accompany us, encouraging us and upholding us, consecrating us such that you would be glorified in our lives. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.